The following is a production of the people of Mars Hill. For more information, visit pomh.org. Good morning again. A little bit under the weather this morning. I'm a little medicated, so if today's message doesn't make a whole lot of sense, you can come back tonight. I won't be on Dayquil tonight. And uh, excuse my box of tissues. Last time I preached without a box of tissues and I was sick, the people on the front got a little bit different experience. (laughs) And it took took a really long time for somebody to bring a tissue to me last time too, so... Um, so I, I just took care of it myself this morning, so hopefully we won't need them. Uh, Romans 10, verse 5 through 13 is what we're looking at t- this morning. And um, we're, we're getting into uh, uh, what I love. I want to take a little bit of a different angle with this passage uh, this morning than maybe we usually hear it preached. And, uh, and we're going to look a little bit at last week's passage too, uh, just to clear up any confusion, just so that we can understand where Paul is going uh, with this passage. So let's start in verse 5 of Romans 10, and let's, uh, let's move in through, uh, go through verse 8 for now. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead? But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is, the word of faith that we proclaim. Now, real quickly, let's look at verse 4 so that we can see where Paul is coming from and where he's going. Verse 4 says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now, I think it's very important for us to understand this verse right here so that we can understand where Paul is going and understand what he's saying. Paul is not saying that the law was ever a separate way of salvation apart from grace. The very point Paul is making by quoting the Old Testament in today's passage is to show that the Old Testament teaches salvation by grace. So Paul is not saying that once upon a time you were saved by the law, but now Christ has come, you're no longer saved by the law. What he's saying is that there are many people who are acting as if the law of Moses is the covenant of works. It's the way that you're saved and that obedience to it gains you right standing with God. And Paul is saying Christ is the end of that. The covenant of works in the garden had demanded personal and perfect obedience to its stipulations. God had commanded Adam to obey him perfectly. And what happened? What was the consequence of Adam disobeying God's command? He was cast out of the garden. He was cut off. But some have come along and they've treated Moses' law as if it were a separate way of salvation, that keeping its stipulation was the way to have a right relationship with God. But Paul is saying that Christ is the end of that way of thinking. Christ has brought an end to that. And unless we understand this thesis, I think that the following text can be bent to countless false accusations and conclusions. Paul seeks to use the law and the teaching of Moses about the law to support and explain his comments. And so he begins by referencing uh, Moses' writing that if one seeks to attain righteousness, both right standing and right relationship with God through the law, they must do so by keeping all of it. And the person who does the commandments shall live by them. The intent in rehearsing this quotation, I think, is multifaceted. First, Paul is wanting to demonstrate the universality, uh, the scope of the command 
the person being any person from any nation. So salvation has always been on the table for the Gentiles. Now, there's some who believe that when we read this passage and we read the passage that we looked at last week, that, that, that what Paul is getting at is, is he's rebuking the Israelites for not being a blessing to the nations, for hoarding God to themselves, for keeping the law to themselves and not going out and being a blessing and, and telling the nations about who God is. But then it stops there. James Dunn is a proponent of that uh, who's who's been very vocal about this is what Paul's rebuking. And I don't disagree with what Dunn says, but I think that only misses, that, that only deals with half of what Paul is dealing with. Because I do think that Paul is rebuking the Gentiles, I mean the Israelites, for not being this blessing to the nations, and for, for hoarding God to themselves, thinking that God was, was theirs alone and that this relationship with God was only for them. And Paul is rebuking them for that. But I think that he goes a step further because of the way that he writes, especially in verse 4, that he's saying, you thought that the law was your salvation. And he's been hitting on this week after week if we've been studying this. It's not anything new that we're looking at. And he's harping on this and he's saying, look, you thought the law was your salvation. And it's not. It's Christ. It's grace. It's faith. It's always been that way. The Old Testament is always taught by grace through faith you are saved. How is Abraham saved? How is it accredited to him righteousness? By what? Faith. Before the law even existed, before he was even circumcised, he was, he was a Gentile. And so Paul is saying it's always been salvation through grace. Salvation is God's grace. There's nothing you can do. There's never been anything you can do. So what is he saying then? I think in an ironic twist, Paul cites Moses' teaching that the one who, deserves, who does the law attains life. That's a reiteration of what, we, what he said in chapter 2, that it's not the hearer of the law, but the doer of the law who is justified. But there's an interesting turn of events, because since Christ is the end of the law of righteousness, Paul inverts his teaching by saying that faith comes from hearing about the word of Christ. There is no hope for the doer of the law, but only the hearer who believes. Look at verse 5. He says, For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the command, commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. So in these two verses, Paul is once again contrasting works by righteousness and God's righteousness. So in last week's passage, we saw that Paul was giving us a possessive source for both of these things. He's talking about the righteousness of God. That's a possessive source. Whose righteousness is it? Who does it belong to? God? Yeah. The righteousness of God belongs to God. Who is the source of that righteousness? God. And our own righteousness belongs to who? Us. Our own we possess that. And who is the source of that? Us. This is 
a huge contrast that Paul is making. There is a difference between the righteousness of God and our own righteousness. And that's what Paul is rebuking Israel for. He's saying you are trying to attempt salvation by your own righteousness. And there's a big difference between your righteousness and God's righteousness. Because even your best intentions, your best deeds can only get you hell. But the righteousness of God, what Christ has come and done, that brings redemption. And that brings salvation. This is you. And this is what you can do. And this is the best you can do. And this is the very best that God can do through Christ. So there's a righteousness based on the law and there's a righteousness based on faith. The righteousness based on the law is what Paul defines as our own righteousness. And the righteousness based on faith is what Paul defines as God's righteousness. So in verse 5, Paul cites Leviticus 18.5 to describe this legal righteousness. The, the man who does these things shall live by them. So what does he mean by that? The man who does these things shall live by them. Paul is not suggesting here that Moses taught that one could be saved by doing the law. If that's the case, then, then salvation through grace in the Old Testament doesn't exist. If you can be saved by doing the law. Living in the Old Testament context refers to the enjoyment of covenant privilege and not necessarily to eternal life. And so what Paul is saying is that, um, Paul's point is that any righteousness based on the law is by definition something one can do for doing is what the law is about. Leviticus 18.5 makes that clear. But in contrast to this legal righteousness then is the righteousness that is by faith. And so Paul uses a figure of speech. He puts Deuteronomy 9, 4 and 30, 10 through 14 on the lips of this righteousness. The general point he wants to make about the righteousness by faith is clear. Through Christ being brought down to earth, this is Paul's equation. Through Christ's incarnation, through him coming to earth, plus his being brought up from the dead, his resurrection equals that God has made righteousness readily available. One does not have to ascend into heaven or plumb the depths of the sea to discover it. All one needs to do to attain righteousness is to respond in faith to the gospel as it is preached. In other words, the righteousness based on the law says, I can do this. I'm a good person. I can be worthy. I can prove to God that I'm not as bad as he says I am. I can pray, I can read my Bible, I can go to church, I can give to the poor, I can love my neighbor, I can be a good husband, I can provide for my family, I can stop yelling at my kids, I can be generous. That's what the law says. The righteousness on the law says all of these things. I can do all of these things. And these are all great things. These are all good things to do. But the righteousness of the law says I can do these things and I can be right with God. And instead of being dismayed by the failed attempts to perfectly accomplish these things, we double down our efforts only to arrive at the same results. We've tried to arrive at the proper destination. Leviticus 18.5, righteousness through the law. We've tried to arrive there thousands of times, trusting our map, which was the law, works, and our inner compass, which is our conscience, to guide us there. However, we've ended up at the same dead-end street every single time. And in verse 6, Paul pops his head into our car window 
And he says, you've got the map upside down. For the law, which we were attempting to use as our roadmap to heaven, testifies about another kind of righteousness. The righteousness that is based on faith. And so he aims to show this when he brings up Deuteronomy 10. Look what Deuteronomy 10, uh, I mean Deuteronomy 30. Uh, look what that says, verse 11 through 14. For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you. Neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will gather over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. Now Moses is not saying, what Moses is saying is you, is you can follow the law through faith. But you cannot perfectly obey the law. It is impossible for you to do because of sin. But through faith, you can. And Paul is not, I mean, Moses is not saying that the, the law is your salvation. Moses is saying that the law points to another kind of righteousness because it shows us God's character. It shows us who God is. It shows us who we are and how broken and sinful we are. The law is good. Paul has never said that following the law is a bad thing. He says it's a great way to live your life. I mean, the God who designed this world has given us this gift of the law to show us how to live in this world, how to survive, how to multiply. Uh, I just did a, a, a Google search to look up the number one bestsellers um, as of March, 2017. The first 15, the first nine are self-help books. Number one bestsellers. We could probably burn every self-help book if we would just go to the Old Testament and begin to read how God has designed this world to work. The creator, the designer of this universe has given us a gift of the law to say, this is how I've designed the world to work. And if you operate within these boundaries, you will be successful. You will live and you'll be multiplied. You'll be able to multiply. The law teaches us how to raise our kids. The law teaches us how to teach our kids to love God. The law teaches us how to cultivate land. The law teaches us how to manage our money. The law teaches us how to have relationships with one another and to treat one another fairly the way God's designed it. And those who live by the law, or, or, or what does he say? The man who does these things shall live by them. He's not saying that he'll have eternal life by doing these things, but he'll know how to operate in this world. He'll understand the way that the world works. And I would challenge you, we don't celebrate Passover. We've got Passover coming up April 10th. I love Passover. It's my favorite, one of my favorite things that we do here. But we don't celebrate Passover because we feel obligated to celebrate Passover, that somehow if we miss Passover, that God is gonna condemn us and judge us. We celebrate Passover because it shows us who Christ is. Because Christ is the fulfillment of those promises that we see in Passover and throughout the rest of the feast. It's amazing to see those things. And I would encourage you to come and sit down at one of our seders or, or experience one somewhere at a New Testament church and see how Christ has fulfilled those things. 
We don't do it out of obligation. We do it because it gives us another picture of who Jesus is. It shows us more clearly who Jesus is. In his final words to the nation of Israel, Moses recites the law over the next generation of Israelites who are at the doorsteps of the promised land. When the previous generation disqualified themselves through incessant disobedience, the only ones that could go in were Joshua and Caleb. Moses offered a postscript that these commandments were not beyond Israel's comprehension, nor were they beyond her reach. And so Paul quoted freely from Deuteronomy 30 to reference Christ. In Deuteronomy, Moses was telling the people that they did not have to climb up to heaven or cross the sea to discover the will of God. Paul applied the passage to the availability of the message of salvation. One commentator says that no heroic attempts to storm the citadel of heaven or the kingdom of the dead are needed. Christ the Savior is here, incarnate and risen. And faith is readily available for those who will simply believe and confess that Jesus is Lord. So the message concerning faith is already within easy reach of each of us. In verse 9, he says, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is the Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So the question that that Paul is seeking to answer in this is, how are we saved? What must we do to be saved? That's the question that we see when people confront Jesus in the New Testament. What's the question they ask? What must I do? As the rich young ruler, what must I do to be saved? Jesus gives him a list of things to do because that's what he was looking for. Here's what you can do. Go and sell everything that you have. Give it to the poor and come follow me. And what did that man do? He walked away sad. And I love the way that this verse is translated because many riches had him. Not he had many riches, but something else owned him. Something else had him. Many riches had him. What must we do to be saved? And Paul's answer, nothing. There is nothing you can do to be saved. Salvation is not an outward act of meeting God's standards, but rather an inward belief and confession that Jesus is Lord. And we shouldn't attempt to put a wedge between believing and confessing or justification and salvation because they're two parallel realities. When Paul writes in verse 10 that believing leads to justification and that confession leads to salvation, he was not speaking of two separate processes here. It's not believe and confess. They're one and the same. They're the same. We, we think that there's two things. You know, we gotta believe, but if we don't confess, well, it doesn't count. Yeah, we, we think that way because he says believe and confess. Well, I believe, but I never got a chance to confess it. And that's one of the reasons why we see baptism being such an issue for salvation. Because maybe baptism is, is our confession. 
Paul's saying believing and confessing are the same things. They're two parallel realities here. Justification and salvation are being used interchangeably in Paul's context. To believe with one's heart means to commit oneself at the deepest level to the truth as revealed and experienced. But I think there's a deeper component to believing and confessing. Belief is an internal trust, placing your faith in the person of Christ. Confessing is a public acknowledgement or praise of that truth. It's like worship. Worship is an outward expression of what God is doing in us. Well, when we come in here and we sing, I mean, we can really tell what God is doing inside of us by our outward expressions. And unfortunately, in the church today, I see a lot of this when we sing. And, and maybe we're rejoicing on the inside, but is that real? I mean, is that what God is really doing in us? I mean, the guy, the, 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 the God who defied the laws of nature to bring Christ to earth, to die and resurrect from the dead, what he's doing in our heart really looks like this. Because worship is an outward expression of what God is doing in us. And that's the same thing with confessing what we believe. That belief and confession are the same things. I believe in my heart and my outward confession is what God is doing in me. What he's done, salvation and redemption. And I think this outward expression is really difficult for many of us, if not most of us in this room. I'm there sometimes. And sometimes it does feel like inside my heart, it just looks like this. When you have to get up an hour early and you're not feeling really well, sometimes it does just kind of feel like this. When the kids are beating each other up, they don't want to listen. You've had a long week at work. Sometimes it does just feel like this. And I think that that may be true for most of us in this room, myself included. We know that the gospel is good news. That's, that's literally what it means. And we believe it in our hearts. We believe that it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. And we're not ashamed of the gospel per se. But we sometimes struggle mustering the courage to tell our next door neighbor whom we'll talk sports, taxes, works, politics. We struggle to tell them about the reconciling work of Christ on the cross and his kingdom. And I don't want to put us on a guilt trip. I don't want to be that guy. I mean, we hear it all the time. Why can't we be as excited at church as we are at a football game? I'm not trying to put you on a guilt trip. What I'm trying to do is convince you that if you, not that if you really loved God, you would share your faith, but to cultivate a heart of evangelism through joy. We don't share out of obligation. We share out of joy. I talk to people all the time who could care less about what my kid is doing at home, but I tell them anyway. I can't stop talking about him. He's learning a whole bunch of words right now. This weekend, he started saying, hey, buddy. Because that's what his mom calls him all the time. So he said, hey, buddy. That's what he does. He walks around. Hey, buddy. See, I'm telling you guys about him. You don't care. The other day, he went potty on the toilet for the first time. I was telling everybody about it. 
even the poor lady at Walmart, <laughs> who is apparently his buddy now. <clears throat> Why? Because I'm delighting in watching my son learn and grow. I'm delighting to see his life grow and mature right in front of me, to see him learn new things. The Westminster Shorter Catechism begins with this Q&A. The question is, what is the chief end of man? And the answer, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And while there's two parts to this component, I think that we can understand them as one. Man's chief end is to glorify God by and through enjoying him forever. Or as John Piper would say, God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him. So how does this take place inwardly and outwardly? As we just, just singing, as we breathe in God's grace, we breathe out praise. As we breathe in God's grace every day, in the big things and in the little things, we breathe out praise. Praise or the public profession of our faith is not merely an expression of our faith, but the completion of our joy. We get that from C.S. Lewis. For a long time, C.S. Lewis saw throughout scripture that God was commanding his people to praise him. He say, I command you, all the peoples will praise me. And, and he would look at those passage and Lewis would, would come to the conclusion that God is just vain. And then he wrote this in his book, Reflections on the Psalms. This is a little long, but I wanna read this, this passage to you. The most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. I thought of it in terms of compliment, approval, or the giving of honor. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise unless shyness or the fear of boring others is deliberately brought and to check it. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses, readers their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game. Praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historical personages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, and even sometimes politicians or scholars. I had not noticed how the humblest and at the same time most balanced and capacious minds praised most while the cranks, misfits, and malcontents praise least. <clears throat> I had not noticed either that just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that magnificent? The psalmist is telling everyone to praise God, or, or the psalmist in telling everyone to praise God are doing what all men do when they speak of what they care about. My whole, my more, more general difficulty about the praise of God depended on my absurdly denying to us as regards the supremely valuable, what we delight to do and what indeed we can't help doing about everything else we value. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. It is frustrating to have discovered a new author and not to be able to tell anyone how good he is. To come suddenly at the turn of the road upon some mountain valley of unexpected grandeur and then to have to keep silent because the people with you care for it no more than for a tin can in the ditch or to hear a good joke 
and find no one to share it with. The outward expression of praise is the consummation of our joy. It's the last step in the process. As Lewis says, it completes the enjoyment. It's the teapot whistling when the water is boiling. Enjoyment of your spouse inwardly manifests itself externally through smiles, laughter, cards, flowers, dates, sweet words, and even children. And so Paul's point in Romans 10.10 is that the heart and mouth, inward belief and outward confession belong together. They're one and the same. Confession is the consummation of our joy. When we value something, when we love something, when we see the significance in something, it doesn't feel complete until we've been able to tell someone about it, does it? I mean, why do we share things on Facebook? Why do we share those weird videos about cats wearing sunglasses? Because we thought it was funny. And what's the point if I can't share it with everybody else? It feels incomplete, doesn't it? When we talk and when we see our kids doing funny things, we want to tell people about what they did. I, I, I randomly called my mom and just say, guess what Noble did today? I, I definitely had to do it when he pottied on the toilet. <laughs> because the joy feels complete when we confess it, when we tell about it, when we share it. Maybe, and just maybe the reason why we struggle with evangelism isn't because we don't really believe the gospel or because we're afraid of men. Maybe the reason we struggle with confessing with our mouth that Jesus is Lord is because we haven't experienced the profound, sensible joy that comes that this confession can bring. Perhaps we've been so preoccupied in our duties as soldiers in Christ's army that we've not allowed ourselves the bliss of knowing what Solomon says, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. There's joy in salvation. And so many times when we talk about evangelism, we think of it as, as guilting people out of hell. And maybe the church should be better at showing the joy that comes with knowing God. You know, on Facebook, we're very loud about the things that we're against. But we don't talk very much about the things that we're for. And I think it's because most of us can find the negative in everything. But we have a difficulty finding the joy, even in the mundane, even in the menial tasks, Outward confession stems from a profound inward conviction. Those who come to Christ must believe in their hearts that Jesus was raised from the dead by God the Father. The resurrection of Jesus is the very center of the Christian faith. And without the resurrection, Christianity would be little more than a well-intentioned ethical system. And it is a fact that within history, God did something that defies all the laws of nature as we know them.
He raised Jesus from the dead. And it is the reality of this resurrection that lends credence to all that Jesus did and taught throughout his earthly life. It is God's way of authenticating to us that Jesus is the Son of God. It compels us to tell people about who he is. If Israel was really delighting in God, they wouldn't be hoarding God to themselves. They would be sharing this throughout the world saying, we have to tell the world about this. We have to share this so that they can experience what we experience. And church, I think we're, we're doing the similar thing. We're hoarding God to ourselves. And we're showing people all the things they should be doing. Here's what Christ said, so here's what you need to be doing. Well, I don't believe in Christ. I've never experienced Christ. Why do I care what he says? And that's how we evangelize. And we tell people they need to be on the right side of the, the political party or the right side of political issues. And we have no problem talking about our political convictions. And we have no problem telling the world which candidate they should vote for. But we can't tell people who Christ is and what he's done. Why? Because we're not delighting in God the way he's designed us to delight in him. When God says that all the people will praise me, He's not just commanding them to. He's saying, when you see who I am and what I've done, you will be compelled to. If you really experience who I am, if you really experience the salvation that comes from Christ and knowing him brings. I mean, what did Paul say in Philippians? I mean, he, he basically said it in chapter 7 of Romans. There's a lot of good things that I've done. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Jew of Jews. I was a Pharisee. I was a law. I, I taught the law. He says, if there was anyone that was righteous, it was me. If there was anyone that you could say, that guy's got it, he's figured it out. It was Paul. And what does he say? It was all rubbish. And excuse the French, because what Paul uses there, and the word that he uses is the equivalent to dog crap. He says, that's what it was. That's what my works got me. That's what my works did. That's, that's what I was doing. That was my righteousness, dog mess. Compared to what? knowing Christ and making him known. Paul's goal for his entire life until his death was to know Christ more. Why? Because he delighted in knowing Jesus. And you can see that by the way he confesses who Jesus is. Are you delighting in God? Have you experienced the joy that comes from knowing him and what he's done? What does that look like? How do we delight in God? I would say maybe let's start talking to God more instead of just about him.
Like we can get in our circle of friends and we can talk about the things Jesus is doing and we can talk about the scriptures. We meet in our community groups and we answer the questions and we do all of these things. But are we intimately spending time with Christ? David asked God in Psalm 51, 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation. And maybe for many of us, that needs to be our prayer this morning. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Let me experience the joy that comes from knowing you. Maybe we can read God's words with eyes to see him and ears to hear his voice, believing that he'll speak to us and teach us his truth. We can seek joy in God by putting to death our sin, which are obstacles to true intimacy with him. We can enjoy God by reminding ourselves of his presence with us. And even as we pursue menial tasks of obedience, I remind ourselves in the daily mundane life that God is with us and we can experience him. That maybe while you're changing dirty diapers and you're singing worship songs to God because you're delighting in him, even in the midst of the mess, I still wear gloves. I know, I'm weak. <laughs> At one of our baby showers, Anna Doswell got me a box of gloves. I still use them. But even in the menial mundane tasks, even in the things we don't enjoy doing, where we find little joy in, we can still delight in the presence of God because he's there with us. Those are great times to speak to him. If you've got a long drive to work every day, turn the radio off and just talk and spend some time with him. It'd be weird at first. But spend some time with him. Find opportunities to experience God's presence. We can use our senses to cultivate our joys by enjoying the giver through his gifts. If you have the ability to see, enjoy the beauty of his creation and the things that you see. If you have the ability to hear, enjoy the sound of the wind blowing through the trees, the sound of rushing water, or even the sounds of babies crying. You have the ability to taste Enjoy good food that God's created and good wine or grape juice. Enjoy the good things that God has created because he created them for our enjoyment. It was grace that we can enjoy food. It was grace that we can enjoy the things that we hear around us. It was grace that we can see the beauty in creation. Last night, Rachel and I ate sushi and... This is a bad night to eat sushi because my head was all congested and, and sushi can get, it starts to add up when you get a couple of rolls. And I started eating and I looked at her and I was like, I can't taste this. It was a bad night to, to get sushi because I can't even, all I could taste was the soy sauce. And it really let me appreciate when I can taste. But do we find the goodness of God even in the good food we eat. Let's experience what it means to delight in God.
Let's see the things around us as, as gifts from him for our enjoyment, our children, our relationships, our resources, our talents. These are all grace from God for us to enjoy and to use to worship him. Brad and the band, they're gonna come and lead us in a time of worship as we, as we close out tonight, this morning. And in the songs that you hear, these are, these are words that God put on men and women's hearts to express to God for the enjoyment of the church. And so before you leave and, and before we, 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 we head out the back or whatever, I just want us to take a few moments as the church to spend some time enjoying God. And I pray that what's going on in the inside of us, what God is doing on the inside of us, expresses itself outwardly in worship. I'm not a very charismatic person. I'm the worst dancer there is. But sometimes, as I hear music, and I hear music that honors and blesses God's heart, sometimes I'm just compelled to move a little bit. And I'll be honest, sometimes I have a hard time clapping and singing at the same time. And so I understand those of you that either you gotta choose one or the other, and that's fine. But let's enjoy God this morning. Let's bless his heart. Let's honor his name. And let's celebrate what he's done. And let's let our life and our song and our families, let this all be a response to who God is. Let's enjoy his word. Let's enjoy his commands. And let's live in the light of who Christ is of knowing him and then making him known to the world. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you are honored in these next few moments as we sing to you, as we delight in you, as we worship you. May our mouth confess who you are. But as a part of that confession, may we leave this place with our hands held high as we go to the restaurant or, 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 or home or, or whatever it is we find ourselves, maybe even at work today, and we're just compelled to express the joy that we have in knowing Christ through acts of kindness, through acts of love, and through sharing the gospel. May we not be compelled to do so because we're scared of what you might think or we're guilted into it or whatever it is that keeps us or, 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 or compels us outside of pure joy. Because I believe the gospel is sweeter off the lips of people who are experiencing the joy of knowing Christ. May it radiate in our lives. May we honor you with these words this morning. In Jesus' name.